The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our sermon text this morning is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Good morning, Bethlehem. Earlier in the service, we listened to Pastor Chuck um, read Psalm 8. And I'm going to read part of that psalm one more time. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David is asking God, what is so special about humankind? As he looks at the splendor and the wonder of the moon and the stars, the hosts of heaven, and then looks at man, he's like, why, God, is your gaze focused upon man? Why have you crowned man with glory and honor? Why have you set everything under his feet? What is man? That's the question that we're looking to answer from Genesis chapter 1 today. There are three parts to my answer, three points in my sermon. Point one, man is made, period. He's a created being. Point two, man is made in God's image. And point three, man is made for God's glory. And I'll close with a couple of reflections on ethnic harmony that were provoked as I spent time in Genesis 1 this week. So look with me first at the first four words that God speaks in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man. These four words communicate what is probably the most basic truth about what we are, doesn't it? It's not the greatest truth about what we are. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but the most basic truth about what we are is that we are a created being. We are creatures. We don't exist by chance. We didn't come into this world through a series of random, unguided events that just happened to work out together to bring us about. We came into this world by divine personal action. God's personal action. God personally formed Adam from the dust of the earth. He personally formed Eve from Adam's side. And ever since then, God has personally formed everyone else in the womb. It can be tempting, at least for me, 
in thinking about new life, to think of it merely as the product of biological reproductive processes. I can be tempted to think that God was very up close and personal in his creation of Adam and very up close and personal in his creation of Eve, but that he's been a step removed in every other formation of a human since then. It's not what the Bible teaches. David says to God in Psalm 139, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. New life is always the result of God's personal action, his decisive and personal action. He uses means like reproductive processes. Obviously, we know that, but the means are not decisive. God is decisive. When he wants a new human being to come into existence, he ensures that it happens. He decides when they come, how they come, by whom they come, and to whom they come. And just as he decided to make Adam a man, and to make Eve a woman, so he decides the sex of every human being. There are a lot of things in life, especially in our, our current moment, that God lets us decide for ourselves. But whether we are a man or a woman is not up to us. God determines whether we are a man or a woman, and that determination is plainly revealed in our biological sex. A lot of people today want to think about sexuality in a way that divorces manhood and womanhood from biological sex. They see biological sex as one thing, and then there's this other thing called gender, which can differ from biological sex based on whether or not a person feels that they align with their God-given sex. In this false paradigm, individual people get to decide whether they are a man or whether they are a woman based on how they feel. The popular thinking about homosexuality is similar. I see a person's desires as determinative of what is good rather than God's design. The Bible clearly sets forth marriage between a man and a woman as the only sexual relationship that God blesses. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, God says that man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is God's design for human sexuality. And it's a design that Jesus affirms later in the gospel. Sexual relations in every other context are forbidden because they're sinful, including those between two men or two women. I like to think in logical progressions. So here's a simple logical progression for God's design for human sexuality. I'm going to say it two times. God determines whether we are a man or a woman. We see his determination reflected in our bodies. 
And the God-given manhood or womanhood reflected in our bodies determines what sex of person we are eligible to marry. God determines whether we are a man or a woman. We see his determination reflected in our bodies. And the God-given manhood or womanhood we see reflected in our bodies determines what sex of person we are eligible to marry. If you're a man, you can marry a woman. If you're a woman, you can marry a man. It really is that simple. It really is. If you, <clears throat> to say that the world's thinking about sexuality in this moment is um, worse than it's ever been is not a true statement. The world has had all kinds of twisted ideas about human sexuality that's as old as sin is. And it's so confusing to think about human sexuality in the framework that the world is providing today. But God provides a very simple and straightforward design. It's very easy for us to understand. It's very simple. And it's very good. I can't talk about this in a good conscience without speaking to the tremendous difficulty and pain and challenge and confusion that a lot of people face in their experiences of gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction. Next week, Pastor Kenny is going to walk us through the fall of mankind and the disastrous effects that sin has wreaked upon us and upon the world And then the following week, Ken Curry is going to walk us through the powerful salvation that is in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to swerve into their lanes for a moment. Because I know that in a room this size, there are people who experience feelings. Feelings they didn't choose. And feelings that don't align with God's good design for human sexuality. Some of you do not feel at home in your male or your female body. You feel opposed to it. You feel alien to it. You feel out of place. Some of you, through no choice of your own, are not attracted to the opposite sex, but are attracted to the same sex. And you didn't, again, no choice of your own. The feelings are just there and you don't understand, you may not understand, maybe you do, but you may not understand why God would allow you to feel drawn to ways of life that he condemns in his word. Didn't he create you? Didn't he knit you together in your mother's womb? Are these feelings then his doing? The answer is no. They're not his doing. If you're struggling in these ways, same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, other kinds of sexual dysfunction and abnormalities, I would love to talk with you. But to answer briefly, these feelings are not indicative of the way that God wants you to live your life. The experiences of hating your physical body, your biological sex, of same-sex attraction, and of every other kind of sinful desire— 
every other kind, not just in the bucket of sexuality, but every other kind of sinful desire that's common to man comes not from God. It's not of God. It comes not from his design, but from sin, which has fractured the world. It's fractured God's good design. We'll see next week that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Genesis 3, they plunged humanity into a state of sinfulness, of coming into the world in a way that's bent away from God and toward evil. Every descendant of Adam and Eve, with the exception of one, has come into the world with this <clears throat> experiencing this gravitational pull toward evil and sin. We all, with the exception of one, have gladly given into it and deserve to be punished for it. But it's from this punishment for sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin that God sent his son to rescue us, right? The eternal son of God about 2,000 years ago took on human flesh. He was born to a virgin named Mary, and Mary named him Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, lived the perfect, sinless, Godward life that we have all failed utterly to live. And then he died for us. He took upon himself the just penalty that was coming for us for our active, glad participation in sin. He took it upon himself. The wrath of God was extinguished upon the head of Jesus Christ for the sake of sinful people. Now, by faith in his name, by trusting in his work, we can be forgiven of all of our sins. Past, present, future, the kinds that fit into the sexuality bucket and every other kind. We can be forgiven of all of our sins, be progressively freed from the power of sin in this life, and then be totally freed from the presence of sin in the age to come. <clears throat> Again, I'd love to talk with you if you're struggling with these kinds of things. But I do encourage you to come back next week and to come back the following week. Pastor Kenny and Ken Curry are going to be unpacking these realities so much more than I'm able to do this morning. So to summarize point one, humans are created beings. God made us. And we're going to see as we continue in our text that God has made us in an astonishingly different way than he has made everything else. So far in Genesis 1, there's a pattern when it comes to how God is creating living creatures. He creates them according to their kinds. The plants and trees are made according to their kinds. The sea and the sky creatures are made according to their kinds. The beasts of the earth are made according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things are made according to their kinds. And when we get to the final creature, the final living creature to be made on the sixth day of God's creating work, the pattern breaks. 
Humanity, man, is not made according to their kind, but according to God. Let's read verses 26 and 27 again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is different from every other living creature. None of them resemble the triune God. But we do. I read a lot over the last few weeks about what different people think constitutes the image of God in man, and as as is true amongst, um, when it comes to lots of theological conversations, there are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions. Some think that man's sharing in certain qualities, uh, some think the image of God in man is man's sharing of certain qualities that God has. So last week, Pastor Kenny, in teaching on the doctrine of God, talked about God's incommunicable attributes, such as his eternality and omnipotence and sovereignty. These are attributes only God possesses. Mankind does not possess these. But there are other qualities called communicable attributes that God does, that God possesses, and so do we. Our spiritual and moral and intellectual capacities are a few examples. So this view makes sense to me. Some say that the image of God in man is in our capacity and responsibility to rule over creation. And contextually, that seems to fit. In our text today, image-bearing and ruling, exercising dominion, are linked very closely together. God says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. And then he makes man in his image and says, have dominion. This view makes sense to me. Still others say that the image of God in humanity is in our relational nature. As Pastor Kenny taught last week, our God is triune. He is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see a reflection of this social relational dynamic in humanity. God makes not one person in his image, but two people in his image. It's not good for man to be alone, he says. And then he commands the two of them to create lots more image bearers, to fill the earth with themselves. More community, more relationship. This view also makes sense to me. I don't think we have to choose between these different views. You've probably caught on. I think all of them are legitimate, and probably some others that I didn't list off. Because... To bear God's image and likeness is to be like him, to reflect him. So all the ways that we are like him and reflect him are part of what it means to be in his image. 
Theologians like to complicate things, but I don't think that this one is that complicated. It's not complicated. But it is profound. It's profound in many ways, and I'm just going to talk about a couple. First, being made in the image of God is profound in terms of the value that it places on human life. Lives, the lives of animals are valuable. Some would even say they are precious. I'd probably be among that group. (laughs) I have a dog named Blue, and I love him a lot. My wife says I love him too much. But even I, with my inordinate affection for my dog, am able to recognize that the value of my dog is essentially meaningless in comparison to the value of my five-month-old daughter. My five-month-old daughter, Elizabeth, her value is not found in her her usefulness and what she brings to the table and what she contributes to society because it's not much. Right now, I'm pretty sure that my dog is smarter and more self-sufficient than Elizabeth is. But her life is immeasurably more precious than Blue's life because she's made in the image and likeness of God. I will never see a reflection, a resemblance of God when I look into Blue's face. But when I look into Elizabeth's face, I see something of God. She reflects him like a diamond reflects Light. She is amazing because she's made in the image and likeness of the most amazing one. She is immeasurably valuable because she's made in the image and likeness of the most valuable one. And what's true about Elizabeth is true about us all, even in our fallen and sinful condition. The book of Genesis is very quick to teach us that the fall of mankind into sin did not expel the image of God from us. In chapter 9, verse 6, God bases his condemnation of murdering people, and the only kind of people there are to murder are sinful fallen people, bases that in the fact that the people are made in the image of God. And then in James 3, 9, the apostle condemns using our tongues to curse people curse sinful fallen people because they are made in the image and likeness of God. The effects of the fall, both the moral effects and the natural effects such as physical and mental disabilities do not erase the image of God from us. Every single human continues to bear God's image and thus every human's life is precious and sacred. Life that is a few days old, just getting started in the womb, sacred. My wife and I lost a five-week-old in the womb last March. That life was sacred. Life that is 105 years old, weak and needing of constant help, fading away, barely hanging on, is sacred. 
life that in God's hard providence is marked by disability is sacred. God's making of mankind in his own image is profound in the immeasurable value that it places on all human life. It's also profound in what it indicates to us about the purpose for which we were made. In his book, Providence, John Piper draws out the purpose of humanity from being made in the image of God. Quote, Whatever else it means to be created in the image of God, this much is clear. The purpose of images is to image. We carve images of people and build statues of them in order to portray those people, to put them on display. Thus, when God creates human beings in his image and puts himself on display and then commands that the earth be full of such images of himself, it is clear that God's goal in creation is the display of God. We see throughout Scripture that God seeks his own glory unashamedly. He seeks his own glory and he calls us to do the same. To seek his glory, not our own glory, but to seek his glory. And there are so many texts that teach this, but I'm just going to list two. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, we see that God seeks his glory in creating us. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. He made us for his glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, shows us that God calls us to seek his glory in all that we do. So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, everything that you do, everything falls into that category. Do it all to the glory of God. Our God-given purpose as image-bearing creatures is to glorify God. There's a sense in which we do this by just existing, even apart from our actions. There are things about our design, about what we are, that reflect God, regardless of what we do. But the Bible calls us so loudly to actively image him to use our moral and intellectual and spiritual and physical and social capacities to whatever degree we have them to glorify him, to make much of him, to speak about him and point to him in a way that demonstrates he is the most beautiful, the most supreme, the most powerful, the most worthy, the most enjoyable being and person that exists. And glorifying God, acts of glorifying God in the way that the Bible calls us to do it, does not merely consist of outward actions that we do with our mouths or with our hands. The essence, the core of glorifying God in the way that the Bible calls us to do it is in valuing what God values and loving what he loves 
In a minute, I'll get to the object of his value and love, but I just want to talk about what valuing and loving, what they are. Valuing and loving are functions of the heart. In Isaiah 29, 13, God condemns those who honor him with their mouth while their hearts are far from him. It shows us that the kind of honor, the kind of glorification that God calls for is that which has its roots in our affections, in our feelings. He wants us to value what he values, to love what he loves, to treasure what he treasures, to desire and seek after what he desires and seeks after. When God values and loves and treasures most is himself. He values and loves other things too, like us. But his love and value of himself is supreme. Throughout scripture, we see him acting, even in expressions of kindness and mercy and love toward people who he values, doing that for his name's sake. His glory is his chief motivation. It's at the bottom of everything that he does. It should be ours as well. The reason that we at Bethlehem are about spreading a passion for the supremacy of God and not the supremacy of charity or the supremacy of justice or the supremacy of human flourishing is because we believe that God loves and values himself supremely and therefore so should everyone. God calls us to treasure him, to desire him, to love him, value him, seek after him with our hearts. And he calls us to do so not from a distance like a servant would, but as we walk with him in relationship. To use the Bible's popular metaphor, as a children with their father. Our God is a king. He reigns and rules supremely. He is high and lifted up, and he sings over those who trust in him. He lavishes us with the riches of his grace. He shelters us underneath his wings. He walks with us through the fire and the flood, and he works all things for the good of those who love him. Our God is good. He's a father to us. He's a friend to us. He calls us rightly to love him and cherish him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is the purpose for which you exist. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's also biblically correct to say that God is seeking peoples, an S, to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's Ethnic Harmony Sunday here at Bethlehem. So I want to close with a couple of all people's 
thoughts that Genesis 1 provoked in my mind and heart this week. While it may not be immediately visible to us in the creation account, there are implications in Genesis 1 for ethnic harmony. In the book of Acts, we see Paul speaking to the people of Athens, and he points to Genesis 1 when he tells them that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All nations from one man. God made all the ethnicities, all the peoples of the world from Adam. All the genetic material that was required to produce the diversity of skin color, eye shape, hair colors, hair textures, body heights and build, it was all contained in Adam. Peoples of African descent, Middle Eastern descent, European descent, Asian descent, and every other kind of descent, first and foremost, descend from Adam. We should value relational harmony across all peoples, across all ethnic lines, in part because it accords with our anthropological harmony, the harmony of what we are as one human race. But the roots of our valuing ethnic harmony at Bethlehem go a whole lot deeper than human biology. They descend down into the eternal purposes of God. God's design before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1, was that the world would be filled with lots of different kinds of people who unify together, not primarily around their common humanity, but primarily around their common love and adoration and worship of the triune God. Our ethnic harmony is God-centered. This God-centered unity among different peoples has been taking on real form ever since Christ rose from the dead and instituted his church for all peoples. But as you well know, the ongoing presence of sin in the world and in the church, not accepted from that, has hindered perfect harmony across ethnic lines. We have to have ethnic harmony Sundays because, because ethnic-based strife and division still exists. But one day, and that is such a Pastor Bud phrase, one day, pointing to the new heavens and the new earth, we will see and participate in the perfect harmony that the Apostle John writes of in Revelations, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The purposes of God set into motion in Genesis 1 culminate in that text. Image bearers from all peoples of the world fulfilling their created purpose and glorifying their God and Savior. That's where we're headed, Bethlehem. That's what we're pursuing together now. It's what we're inviting 
people outside of the church who are enslaved to these, enslaved to sin, enslaved to twisted ways of thinking about themselves and about reality, we are inviting them to get in on that with us. Because there's no better life than that which is sought to be lived in maximal adoration of the triune God alongside other people who love him and adore him. It's my prayer that this would be our heart and our aim more and more, week after week, year after year, until we experience it fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Would you please pray with me? God, you are glorious, you are high and lifted up, yet you consider the lowly. Father, we have all fallen short of your glory. We have all fallen short of our created purpose. You sent your son to save us, to restore us to yourself. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for leaning in towards us as a father does to his children. Lord, may we receive all of the grace that you extend to us in Christ. May we by faith take hold of everything that you offer to us in offering us yourself. But help us, help us to glorify you more and more, week after week, year after year, until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.